If you've got a web browser and you don't like ads, there's a good chance that you've installed a plugin or an extension called Adblock Plus. But did you know that Adblock Plus is going to be adding a new feature to their service? If not, you'll be interested to know that that new feature is, well, ads. A little bit odd, but we'll get into that today. Also, Evernote is going to be moving all of its user data over to Google's cloud platform. We'll discuss whether or not there'll be some privacy concerns and other things to consider with that switch. And today's main topic is fast food design. You've probably heard me use this term in the past. I've written about it extensively, but I'm going to nail down what fast food design is and how we can combat it. All this and more on the Rightly Designed Show. No man who cares about originality will ever be original. It's the man who's only thinking about doing a good job or telling the truth who becomes really original and doesn't notice it. You're listening to the fusion of form and function. This is The Rightly Designed Show. Hello and welcome to the program. My name is Thomas and this is The Rightly Designed Show. So Adblock, as I mentioned at the top of the show, is a pretty useful tool. I use it regularly on pretty much all my devices, or at least my desktop and my laptop. I use a different service uh, for my iPhone and for like my iPad, which actually does a pretty good job. And this is just kind of a side note. If you want to try to block out ads on uh, a mobile device, an iOS mobile device, uh, there's a tool called WebBlock. I think it's WebBlock or WebBlock Pro. Um, it actually does an, a really good job blocking out ads on your across your entire device. So not only in like the mobile Safari, but pretty much all the different apps that you use. If they have internet access, it can block ads in all of them. So that's a pretty useful tool. Total side note. Uh, and I can also leave a link to that in the show notes. But the main point I was making today regarding Adblock was an interesting move that they have decided to make now that you're probably going to start noticing pretty soon if you haven't already. And that is that they're going to now start allowing or actually selling ads. So that might sound a little bit strange for a uh, service called Adblock to actually sell ads. And you'd probably be right. That is a little bit strange. The idea behind it was that in essence, they wanted, they're trying to, they're kind of conceding the fact that ads are a, I guess you could say, necessary evil of the internet in the sense that pretty much everybody does them or needs them in order to survive. So you'll see things like on Forbes.com, they do this. A lot of news websites will actually hinder the usability of the website, they'll give you like a pop-up or they'll completely blank out the screen and say, hey, we noticed you're using an ad blocker. Please turn it off so you can continue using the website, which is really annoying. Uh, and if you've experienced this, as a lot of people do, they just end up leaving the website. And from a usability standpoint, I've always kind of made the point that it's not really the smartest move in the world because you're, unless your content is really, really, really premium, uh, then you're really going, unless it is really premium, you're really just going to be shifting away people to your competitors. If you're a news website, well, they're just going to be going to another news source. So from a strategic standpoint, I've never really understood it. But 
from Adblock's perspective, they're seeing that there's kind of this clash between the titans, so to speak, the clash between giant websites needing to be able to monetize their content and services like Adblock and, you know, different ad blocking services that are preventing them from doing that. Uh, even between Facebook, Facebook is now trying to implement ways that will actually disable an, an ad blocker's functionality. So again, there's just kind of this conflict going between the two. So here's an article, and it was in The Verge, that kind of breaks some of it down. And so I'll just, I'll read a portion of it. It says, the marketplace is an extension of the acceptable ads program that Adblock Plus has been running since 2011. Since then, the ad blocker has defaulted to whitelisting, quote unquote, approved ads so that they show up even when users have the ad blocker turned on. But the program has been fairly limited in scope since publishers and ad networks need to specifically work and pay Adblock Plus to have their ads deemed acceptable. It's a time-consuming process, Williams emphasized, which limits how many websites can, uh, can sign up to display its ads to would-be ad blockers. Adblock Plus hopes that though this new market, uh, through this new marketplace, there'll be a big expansion in the usage of, ex, uh, of acceptable ads. Because these, they've already picked out uh, and are ready to go uh, with a number of these, any publisher will be able to sign up, plug some code into their website, and start running whitelisted ads. So just a quick side note, it's something that publishers or websites would be able to incorporate into their own current infrastructure, you know, just similar to you would to the way if you were going to run like a Google AdSense or something. So none of the ads are able to track visitors from site to site, and they'll all be limited to certain dimensions and page locations as defined by Adblock Plus's guidelines. The program is meant to be friendly to publishers. It is, after all, letting them display some ads instead of none whatsoever. But there's still obvious reasons for publishers to be unhappy. Acceptable ads are likely to be less valuable than the ads a publisher could otherwise display, limiting what a website can earn. And in setting up its own marketplace, Adblock Plus continues to position itself as a gatekeeper, charging a toll to get through a gate of its own making. So they go on and they have a lot of different um, points that they're making regarding what this means for publishers. For the user, what this means is when you're the interesting thing with having a program and this kind of goes back to a branding point if you've got a program called or a software service called adblock plus you're already kind of initiating a specific expectation for your users you're telling them that i'm installing this so that i can block ads but what they're saying here now is that well okay we're going to block some ads but some ads we're going to less we're going to let through I totally understand the strategy. One is that they're trying to monetize their platform, obviously, if they're selling ads, that right there is an income stream for them. But number two, and this one is, is even more understandable in the sense that they're trying to create a trend of less intrusive ads. They're kind of steering the web, at least in their sphere of influence, to create, you know, to shift away from these flashing animated you know, flash ads or these gigantic, tall animated banners or these things that, you know, slide out and, and interrupt you as you're reading or all these different things which have become, which have made the web's, you know, user experience in general really horrible. So in that sense, they're, they're trying to combat this. But again, to go back to that branding perspective, when you prov when you have a service that provides when you have certain expectations that you're providing to your customers when you completely reverse course on that it's only natural that you're going to get some kickback on that so 
I wouldn't be surprised if you see a lot of people starting to switch to other ad blockers or other services starting to pop up. We're just kind of have to see and monitor it and see how that goes. But it is an interesting point that they are deciding to sell ads even as an ad blocker. So as always, uh, any of these articles that I'm referencing, you'll be able to find over at rightlydesigned.com. And for this episode specifically, you can find any of the articles referenced at rightlydesignedshow.com slash 26. Okay, and the other thing I was going to touch on and I mentioned at the top of the show was Evernote. So I had mentioned Evernote and their pricing changes that they had made a few episodes back. And so one of the things that they had done, you know, uh, back when I mentioned their price changing is they only went up a couple of dollars a month, but it made huge waves across the industry and people were complaining and that sort of thing. And so there's a lot of changes that have been uh, being made at Evernote ever since they've had some new management uh, step in recently. And so now what they're going to do uh, is they're going to switch from their proprietary data storage facility or services. So up until now, Evernote has a, has had its own proprietary methods of storing your data. So if you're an Evernote user, you're probably already well aware of, you know, the things that you can store in Evernote. You can store video, you can store audio, you can store just about anything in a note. So, you know, you can, you know, clip a web page, you can, you know, compile a bunch of images. And as I mentioned, you, know, you can even record audio notes. And so people use Evernote. I know I'm personally an Evernote user. And so a lot of people use Evernote as just kind of an organized junk drawer where you just throw everything. I know I personally have like tags for everything and everything's super organized, but I throw just about everything in terms of receipts and documents and things I need to be able to save for later in a digital format. I use Evernote for that. Well, now Evernote is going to be switching their infrastructure over to Google Cloud. So it's an interesting move and people's, a lot of the initial concerns with it were the thought that, uh oh, this is Google you guys are giving everything to. This is the same Google who collects people's data, you know, of Gmail users and collects user data of people so that they can sell them advertising. Now, in fairness, they are using something called Google's cloud platform, which is, in theory, something that's completely separate from Google's other entities. It's just a storage facility. Amazon has something similar that a lot of people use. Uh, so here's a quick snippet from TechCrunch, which kind of outlines what exactly is happening. So Evernote, the popular note-taking productivity startup with 200 million users, has built its reputation around an app that lets you record and track all of your life's details, hold them there for life. Today, the company is shifting gears on the question of how it will keep and hold and, and keep track of that information. Evernote is migrating all of its data, including some 5 billion notes, to Google's cloud platform. As a part of that, it will also help start to use Google's machine learning APIs to help uh, assess and use that data in different ways. As a result, Evernote will be shutting down its previous storage architecture that was based around a private cloud infrastructure along with some of its own tech. Evernote's new CTO uh, told me the first two areas that they will uh, that will be replaced by Google's machine learning APIs are its voice recognition for speech-to-text translations and natural language processing used to help search for contextual content. So, uh, in essence, what they're doing is they're they're shifting everything over to a technology that already exists. In some ways, it's going to be a more advanced technology, especially the 
text recognition that it, that is already built into Evernote, naturally you're going to assume uh, Google's technology is going to be a little bit more advanced. So what uh, some of the other people are actually so this they they kind of name as you know precedents before this some of the other companies that are already using the same technology. So Snapchat, Spotify. Uh, Akado, Viant, Wix, and Disney are just a few that they name who are already using different aspects of this Google technology. Now, some of the concern that is being, you know, put forth with this switch is, again, comes back to what I previously mentioned, which is a little bit with the privacy. You're, in essence, you're uh, giving, you know, you're you're turning over a ridiculously massive amount of data to a company that already has a ridiculously massive amount of data. So now what the, uh, the CTO did say is that they quote, have no intention of using any of this data for ads, which is kind of a loose lawyerly way of saying we probably won't ever use any of your data to advertise to you. It wasn't really the most assuring statement uh, in the world. But again, we'll just kind of have to see uh, how they decide to move forward with this, how they use that data. For now, they're promising a lot of different flexibility in terms of the features that they're going to provide and that sort of thing. Um, but it's good to know. If you're an Evernote user, you uh, uh, should probably be aware if uh, Evernote doesn't actually send out an email or a notice that your data will soon be stored on Google's server. So interesting to know, interesting to keep in mind for sure. Okay, well, today's main topic that I wanted to touch on today is, as I mentioned at the top of this show, fast food design and why fast food design is so important, why I use the phrase over and over again, and some of the things that we can begin to do to combat that, even if you don't have, per se, a big budget to go through a whole branding campaign or all the necessary, all the, the big and necessary steps required to build a successful and solid brand that lasts. Still some tips and some things that can be employed to ensure that uh, you avoid the common pitfalls that are associated with fast food design. But before I jump into that, I wanted to take a quick moment to mention something I've mentioned in the past, and that is a new WordPress theme I've developed and which is available now over at Notable Themes. And this theme has been specifically designed for authors. I designed this theme uh, specifically because I've run across so many authors I've worked with. If you've heard me in the past, you're probably aware of the fact that I've worked in the publishing industry for a while now. So I've, you know, book jacket design and a lot of marketing type things I've done in the publishing industry. Um, But one thing I've noticed with new books that come out, whether it's through an independent self-published author or through a traditional publishing house, is that there's no real hub for that book launch. And so I've created a new theme called Bookstand that is meant to fill that gap. So Bookstand is meant for a single book. So when you launch a new book, you want to start a new website. You know, if you've got a website called My Great Book, you want to buy, you know, mygreatbook.com, and then you, you're going to want to grab uh, the bookstand theme for this. And so what it is is a nice, easy-to-use, easy-to-configure WordPress theme uh, that's a, wor- a one-page scroller, and it's all based off of the functionality of widgets. So if you're familiar with customizing and configuring sidebar widgets in a WordPress theme, you already know how to use Bookstand. So it's got a place where you can add or upload a book trailer. It's got an extra area where you can add bonuses so you can capture people's email addresses. It's got a uh, different 
areas where you can add specific places where people can buy them. So Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, as well as iBooks or a number of the other different places that you want to be able to offer that book for sale. It's got a place where you can upload like an avatar or a photo along with a testimonial. So if you've got a big testimonial, you can add that person's photo along with the quote that they gave you, their name, and you can even link to their website if you wanted to. And they're all arranged in a nice, beautiful and responsive way. You can also uh, add reviews. So if you get a review over on Amazon or on Barnes & Noble or another place like that, uh, you can highlight specific reviews. It's also got a, uh, a nice simple contact form so you can schedule media interviews. It's got share buttons and it tells you it's got share counts so you can see how popular the pages become. Really just the things that are essential to promoting a book and giving people a place to go to if they want to find out more information about it. It's a really uh, essential marketing tool, especially in today's digital age. It's unfortunate that a, a lot of places in the publishing industry are just kind of lagging behind the curve a little bit in terms of today's digital age. Books are still very much being read. Books are still very much popular, uh, very popular. Book marketing, on the other hand, still kind of seems to be lagging behind and Bookstand is here to help that. So if you'd like to check that out, I highly recommend you check out Notable Themes and you can find that at NotableThemes.com. Design. Branding. Marketing, WordPress, helping you build a better brand through the fusion of form and function. This is the Rightly Designed Show. Okay, so the main thing I wanted to touch on today is fast food design. You may have heard uh, heard me use this term in the past before. You may have maybe read an article where I've mentioned it, and there is actually one I wrote a little while back. Uh, comparing cr- the the term craftsmanship to fast food design. Uh, and what I really mentioned or went into in that article is why craftsmanship and why taking a detailed, strategic, thoughtful approach to building your brand can really make you stand out from the crowd in today's fast food design world. Uh, and so what is fast food design? Fast food design is very much, you know, there's a a strong comparison to fast food itself. It's quick, it's easy, it's cheap, and there's not a whole lot of thought that goes into it. Uh, So if we were to draw the parallel with actual fast food, you know, why do you go and you get fast food? A lot of the time it's because, again, it's quick, it's easy, typically it's cheap, and it's not something you have to put a whole lot of thought into you go and you buy it, you eat it, and you're done. It's not uh, something, you know, long-term. It's not something that you, you know, a lot of times, it's not something that you plan out that you're going to do in advance, at least with a, a lot of thought. Again, it's just something that's done very quick and easy. So what are some of the side effects to fast food? You know, you, there's heartburn, there's indigestion, there's all sorts of, you know, health issues that can go along with eating fast food, at least on a regular basis. It's not typically the health, the healthiest thing in the world for you to eat. So now, but to some degree, you know, it kind of, the very concept of fast food is understandable to a degree, you know, every now and then, you know, people are busy, things come up and, you know, it makes sense that in those circumstances or situations, you want to be able to go and just get something quick to eat. Uh, But the difference between a meal and your brand is that one happens every, you know, three times a day. The other one happens once in however many years. 
And your brand is so important. So that's why when the same mentality of I'm just going to go out and get something quick, I'm just going to get something fast, I'm just going to get something cheap can have a huge impact. It would be as though you're getting ready to build, you're getting ready to go and find something to eat and you only got to eat one more meal for the next two years. Somehow I don't think it's going to be, you know, a fast food restaurant. Somehow I think it's going to be something a little bit uh, more thought through than that fast food meal. Well, that's the exact comparison that I like to draw between building a brand. So that's why, for example, you know, if you're going to go out, you're going to get a logo design. It helps and it definitely pays in the long run to put some thought into, uh, you know, into actually having a logo design crafted around an idea, around a philosophy, around a strategy, around a way of doing business or conducting yourself. So what are some examples of fast food design? So I've already kind of outlined, you know, in essence, fast food design is something that's quick, something that's fast, something that's cheap. And that does not have a lot of thought put into it. Um, so what are some examples of this? Um, there's actually one I actually I found recently. I actually tweeted about this a few weeks back. Um, but there's a, a website, and this is kind of a, a unique example. And I think I tweeted at the time, this is probably the best example of fast food design I've ever seen. Um, but it's a website that has like 60 logo designs on it. And the whole concept is... It starts out, I think it was like at $500 or $400, and you can go and you buy the exclusive rights to any of these logos that have been designed. And so they, they're wide-ranging. There's some that are like cruise ships. There's one of like a man standing with like a flag, and then there's just all like grapefruit, and there's just random images and random logos, and you know, you can just go and buy one, uh, and that's your logo. You get the exclusive rights to it and all of that. It's already pre-designed. And the whole idea was every single time somebody bought a logo, the price for buying a logo goes up, like $60 I think is what it was. So every single time somebody bought one of these pre-designed logos, the price went up. So there's that urgency so that you're trying to get more people to go in there and buy more logos and that sort of thing. And uh, so I think it was actually called like design pizza or something like that. So that's why I said, okay, so yeah, this is literally fast food design. They're even using pizza as their slogan. So <laughs> so anyways... and. The reason why that's so, why that's such a a tough road to take if you're going to be building a brand is because you have to take this image, the way that it's styled, the way that it's designed, the way that it's crafted, and you have to begin molding your brand to fit that image, even if that's not what you intended. Maybe it's too cartoony, maybe it's too serious, maybe it doesn't have the right color palette. So those are all things that have to be taken into account when you're building a brand, and they're very important. So that's kind of an extreme example, but another one you may have heard me mention, and I think I even I mentioned this even in its own episode, uh, you know, several weeks back, is logo design or design contests. Now, one of the benefits to a design contest is that you are in fact getting custom design work done. So it's not like the previous example I mentioned where you just have to pick from a gallery of designs and hope that it works. You do actually get custom design work. Uh, done. The problem with a logo design contest is that it's fast food design. It's done quick, it's done cheap, and it's done with not a lot of thought put into it. Now, one of the things that makes uh, a, a design contest so appealing is that you can get like dozens and sometimes even hundreds of designs created for you that you get to choose from. But again, 
it's like having 200 cheeseburgers to choose from rather than one handcrafted meal that was, you know, prepared by a chef and is extremely healthy and delicious and all those things. And that will last you for years to come. So, you know, the example doesn't 100% work, but it's, it, it's the same in essence in this, in the sense that rather, you know, you're choosing from a hundred different mediocre designs or designs that may not necessarily fit your brand best. Sure. You get a lot of design work done, but it's all, uh, every single one of them aren't necessarily the highest quality. If you were to take all that collective work and put it into one logo, you'd end up with something great, most likely. Um, however, the chances are a lot slimmer that you end up with something great if you've just got 100 different people trying to crank something out as quickly as possible, hoping that they'll create something that you like and that may or may not necessarily reflect your strategy and the brand that you're trying to create. Okay, so I go into more detail um, and I'll leave a link to that episode in the show notes if you didn't have a chance to listen to it, where I go into a little bit more detail and, and in-depth with logo design contests. So another one, which is similar to the logo pizza one I mentioned earlier, is that these logo design sets that you can buy. So it's like a gallery. It's, again, very similar to the pizza example, except for the price doesn't go up each time. But you can go and you can buy like a set of logos. And so it'll typically come with a color palette. Uh, and it'll come with a, a, a variety of different ways to use the logo. So it'll come with like a, a letter mark or a word mark, and then it'll come with an actual image. It'll come with different variants, and it'll come with, again, the color palette, sometimes even a style guide. And so everything you need, it's all prepackaged. You buy it. It's like going to Walmart and buying a logo. That's the best way that you could, that I could really kind of describe this. And again, that's fast food design. It's quick, it's cheap, it's easy, and there's not a lot of thought that goes into it. Another thing that you can buy, and these are actually common on stock photo websites. So I am subscribed to a number of different stock photo websites. I use stock photos sometimes in a lot of the different designs that I do. And I'll see often on there that you can actually search for and buy a pre-made stock logo. Now, out of all of the fast food options that are out there today, I would say this is the one that in no circumstances would you ever want. Um, Because even if you're going to go for logo pizza... Uh, at least you you uh, own the exclusive rights to that logo. That's not the case for stock photo websites. That means that if you go to a stock photo website, now, admittedly, this is probably the absolute cheapest way you can go because I think a lot of these stock photo websites, a photo or a, a vector or an image, or in this case, a logo, is like $9. So you could end up with a logo for $9. But the problem is that at stock photo websites or at stock image websites or stock logo websites, you don't own the rights to that image. That means that 3,000 other people can go and buy that exact same image and use it as their own logo. Sometimes it'll say, you know, your text here. So you could be, you maybe you change the colors a little bit, but in terms of branding, that's disastrous. To have anybody using a logo that's even similar to yours can cause some serious problems, especially if they're in the same market as you. Now, it does happen time and again, you know, throughout different, I mean, just because there is nothing new under the sun. Everything's been done before. Uh, Even brands that have been custom built, you know, from the ground up, the logo designs that have been created by professional designers sometimes end up looking like other designs that have been created before. It happens. Again, as I mentioned, everything's been done. There is nothing new under the sun. However, it's always good to, to, to avoid starting out with something that you know for a fact will be done by somebody else. So stock logo designs are just about as fast food as you can get. 
Another service out there, uh, which is actually a great service for a lot of things, uh, but not for building your brand, is Fiverr. So Fiverr, if you're not familiar with it, is a service where you, you can uh, you go here and a lot of different, you know, a whole variety of different people offer services for $5. So it's, it's literally $5 plus like an extra dollar for like their fee. And then you can also, uh, typically a lot of these have add-ons, so you can pay a lot more for all sorts of different services. But they do offer logo designs. You can go on Fiverr, pay $5, or you can even upgrade and, you know, pay, I think some of them are 20 and some of them get up to like $50 for a logo design on Fiverr. This is going to be very similar to a logo design contest in this, from the designer's perspective, in that if they're only being paid $5 for this logo, they have to, to create it very quickly. Their incentive is speed, not quality. So, and this is actually even a little bit of a step down from the logo design contest, because in this case, you're only getting one logo to choose from. They may offer you a couple of different concepts to choose from, but it's only one person, whereas even the logo design contest provides you with, you know, hundreds of different people who are providing these at once. But what makes this fast food design is similar to that of the other ones that I've mentioned. From the design perspective, the goal is speed, not quality. It's getting it done quickly so I can get onto the next order, not I'm trying to craft something that necessarily as a work of, of art, but employing craftsmanship, creating something that I would want to showcase on my portfolio. So that's a huge difference, you know, and that's why, you know, I referenced that article previously, is that people who are willing to invest the time, the effort, and the energy into something that is handcrafted, something that is strategically created, can stand out significantly, you know, from competitors or other brands that are being created via fast food design. So again, Fiverr, they've got tons of services that are great. You know, you can get like, uh, you can get voiceovers done or video intros or all sorts of other things, little pieces that you can kind of dictate, you know, that would, that help to ex, you know, accent your current brain, things that you can add in. But I would not recommend it for something that's pivotal to your brand itself, something that is going to have to reflect it for years to come. So that would include things like, logo design, really significant branding elements, a book cover design, website layout, things like that that are going to be really pivotal to you building your brand over time. Another one that gets mentioned pretty regularly is a website called Upwork. And similar to Fiverr, this is going to have its uses in time. They're going to, it's, uh, if you're not familiar with Upwork, Upwork is in essence a community where you can go and post a job. So you can say, I want a logo design created, or I want a website built, or I want a book cover designed. And what will happen is a number of different designers from around the world will get on that website and will submit you a proposal. They'll say, you know, you get to list out your budget. They will post a proposal and say what they're, you know, what they'll do, what their strategy is, how they're willing to implement this. And for a lot of different projects, this is actually a great method if you know you need a quick fix to your WordPress site or if you need a quick landing page put together or if there's something you're stuck on. S uh, smaller services, I'd say this is like a great way to go. Now, one, the only reason why I would not recommend it for something that's pivotal to your brand and why I tend to uh, shift it into the fast food design category is because a lot of the people who are on there, and this is unfortunately just a, just a reflection 
of how of what the community has become because I've actually you know I used to post jobs on there fairly recently I'm pretty familiar with how it works and you know a lot of the jobs that get posted on there it's become a quick and cheap uh, community it's not really necessarily the fault of the platform itself in the sense that this isn't necessarily what is it was intended for but a lot of the job postings on there are requests for fast food designs. What do I mean by this? What I mean is that people will post a job, and this is the the vast majority of the posts on there, are going to be people uh, who are posting something like, okay, my budget is $25. I need a new brand identity. My budget is, you know, $50. I need a custom website, a WordPress website built. built. Um, you know, I want an expert in the publishing industry to develop me a book jacket, you know, for my upcoming novel. My budget is $7. Okay, so if that sounds like a really low amount to have, you know, for a budget for, you know, what you're requesting, that's because it is. That's like, that's like a ridiculously low amount. It puts absolutely no value in what's being created. What's really being asked for is fast food design. So what happens to a community when those requests are becoming the majority. What happens is that the designers who really do employ, you know, strate- a strategic approach, a very craftsmanship-oriented approach, a time-intensive ex- uh, and professional approach, will leave that platform. And who it will attract is everybody who's willing to do quick, cheap, fast, easy design. So that's a lot of what you'll see in these different communities is people posting for really, really quick, cheap jobs and designers who are going to be willing to do those really quick, fast jobs. So it's not to say that you could never get something done there. It's just typically I'd recommend, you know, if you can go the route of finding somebody who's going to emphasize and put in as the focus craftsmanship first, you're going to be, you know, leagues ahead of the Uh, of the rest of the crowd that's trying to get everything done fast, quick, cheap, and easy. Okay, so that said, one of the things that you may, you know, run into is, you know, maybe you're just starting out or maybe you just don't have the budget to invest in a big overall brand, Uh, you know, a big old brand overhaul or a new brand identity, you know, uh, strategy. You know, there's a lot that can go into it, you know, and, you know, from starting from building, your logo design, moving onto a website, onto a book campaign, into advertising campaigns and strategies, to all these different things that make up a good brand, at least from a design perspective. So you may be thinking, well, you know what? I just don't have the budget to hire a full-on, you know, designer to do all these different things for me. So I think I'm just going to have to go with something that is of the fast food. Uh, you know, design variety, or at least something that lends itself that way. Maybe I do have to find someone, you know, settle for someone on Upwork or something like that. Well, there's still some things that you can apply from your end to make sure that you end up with something uh, that's as quality as possible, or, or even more importantly than from the design perspective, is thought through and is coming from a strategic approach. So here's a few steps that you can employ to ensure that even if you're going to go a fast food design route, or even if you're not, regardless of the the steps that you're going to take or the type of design you're going to undertake, uh, here are some steps that you can take to ensure that it goes the right direction. So number one, you may have heard me mention this before, and this is kind of a common practice now, but 
you always want to map out your target audience. So that's very important. It's very important to map out the people, the specific group of people that you're trying to reach. If you are trying to reach everyone, as it has been said many times, you will reach no one. So you want to niche down. You want to find the specific group of people that you can best serve with your products, your services, your organization, your ministry, whatever it is. You want to find the people that you're trying to reach uh, first and foremost so that you can keep that in mind with every design decision that you make, with every design that you either make yourself or that other people present to you. Number two is that you want to research well and know not only your target market, but also your competitors. So who else is out there? What do their logo designs look like? What do the books look like in that market? What do the websites look like in that market? How are, how are they conducting their advertising campaigns? Even if they're giant corporations or they're ind uh, independent professionals, what are they doing? And this is important for a number of reasons. Number one, it helps you ensure that you do not create something or have something created that too closely resembles what they are doing. It also enables you to strategize, to consider how you can distinguish yourself from that, uh, from those people in your market. So this is very important. This is why, you know, Apple, I mentioned them in a previous episode, They've done, you know, for as much as I've, you know, criticized them for the headphone jack uh, issue with the recent iPhone 7, they've done a phenomenal job of branding their products and distinguishing them from their competitors. Because as you probably know, there's two different types of quote unquote smartphones in the world as in terms of how most people refer to them. There's the iPhone and there's a smartphone. When people say smartphone, they really... Most of the time, they mean anything but an iPhone. If people are talking about an iPhone, they say iPhone. That is, um, that is an amazing, tar that is an um, like an amazing cornering of that market from a branding perspective. That's the type of brand that you want to build in your market, and part of doing that is going to know specifically, you know, who other people are in your market, what they're doing, and how you can distinguish yourselves from them. Another example is Kleenex uh, or Q-tips. You know, people, even if they buy a uh, off-brand or, you know, a supermarket brand, you know, facial tissues as they're called, everybody still calls them Kleenex. Again, that is called distinguishing yourself from your market. That is building a brand that is synonymous with what you do. Another one would be, you know, I mentioned Q-tips. Again, I don't even know what Q-tips are called, you know, <laughs> Uh, outside of, you know, in the regular store-bought brand. Everybody just refers to them as Q-tips. Again, that is, that is distinguishing yourself from your competition and becoming synonymous with what you do. So that is the goal that you want to pursue when it, when it comes to distinguishing yourself, your brand, your logo design, your identity, your color palette, your logo design, and how you're presented uh, from your competitors. Okay, and the third thing that you want to do is that you want to dis you want to define, and this is good to do before you get any designs done, and that is to define a style or a mood for your brand. So, how are you going to convey your brand? Are you going to be friendly? Are you going to be funny? Are you going to be witty? Are you going to be traditional? What are the words that you would use to describe your brand? And those are the things that you want to incorporate into in, into everything. So, the one way you can kind of do this is to consider your brand for a moment, as odd as it may sound, 
Consider your brand as a person. If my brand was a person, what would it be like? Would they, again, would they be funny? Would they be serious? Uh, would they be professional? Uh, you know, what, what words would I use to describe the brand that I'm trying to build? Now, that'll make a huge difference once, it once design time comes around. Like for me, when I'm building a brand new brand identity, I take these, these moods and, you know, these characteristics and these things that would be used, the style that people would use to describe the brand that they're trying to build. I would take these things and I would, you know, reach into my, you know, design toolbox and spit and pull out specific typefaces that convey that mood or that, that style, a specific color palette that fits that mood or that style or the target market. You know, for example, if you're designing something for little girls, it's probably going to have pink or pinkish hues, maybe even some light blues in there. If you're designing something for men, it's probably going to be earth tones. You know, those type of decisions all will be, all will revolve around the type of style or the target market that you are trying to reach uh, with the mood and the style of the brand that you're trying to create. Number four, and this is a big one too, is familiarize yourself with good design. This does not mean that you have to become a pro at design. You don't have to go and take design courses. You don't have to go through and study the fundamentals of what good design is. You don't have to know color theory and all the things that designers go through to become graphic designers. However, it is good to gain a, a fundamental understanding of design trends, uh, what things are, are constituting good design, what good uh, branding and design practices and principles are. I mean, that's part of why you're listening to this show. And so that's the type of things I want to share here on, uh, on this show. But another thing that you can do, again, to familiarize yourself with good design is to look at good design. So a place that I recommended in a previous episode, and you can check this out uh, in episode 10, and you can see that at rightlydesignshow.com slash 10, uh, is a website called Dribble. And in this episode, I actually go through and I walk you through how to set up an account, how to add things to buckets and to organize things and that sort of thing. But Dribble is a, is a design community kind of like, you know, it's a social network. It's where designers go to share the latest things that they're working on. So you can see what's popular. You can even see like what Dropbox and Evernote and all these big brands are designing and creating. Again, that's a great place to go to familiarize yourself with good design. I see a lot of people getting not so great designs created and, uh, you know, accepting them or calling them good designs. And a lot of times my reaction is, yeah, you're probably not looking at good designs. You're not you know, you're not surrounding yourself with what makes good design. And so you're settling with a design that's not great. So again, that can, that can help change your perspective and help you to hone in and spot what good design is. Even if you're having a design created for you, having an eye for what is going to be professional, what, you know, you know, there are certain typefaces we never use like Times New Roman and Comic Sans, you know, we stay away from those type of things. I mean, all of those things start to become more and more apparent to you. If you take a little bit of time to uh, you know, invest a little bit of time to study and to take a look at uh, what good design is and, and watch it in practice. And number five, and the last thing I wanted to touch on is you want to aim for a design that fits best, that doesn't necessarily reflect you know, personal tastes and trends. So I touched on this actually in episode six. So that's rightlydesignshow.com slash six. But it's the I like mentality. 
Uh, there's two detrimental thing uh, uh, parts to you know a design, and that is the I like mentality, where you know placing personal wants, tastes, and interests above what fits the design best. And number two, following trends, and this is a huge one in the design community right now. You know, bigs, parallax websites, you know, with gigantic photos and images and buttons and everything laid out the exact same way. It's a trend right now. Everybody seems to be following it just because it's the trend. So my philosophy is that, you know, throw trends out the window, throw personal wants, tastes, and likes out the window, and carefully consider what fits the brand best, what commu- what communicates the best, uh, what's the clearest. Now, all these different things, uh, if you work them together and, again, throw out trends and throw out all these other things and just do what's best, that will, uh, nine times out of ten, that's going to, uh, end you up with a far better final product than if you just simply follow a trend or, you know, do something that, you know, looks good, you know, to you or just fits personal tastes and interests. And I, by the way, you know, that's something that applies to me equally as much. And so that's actually been you know, something I've tried to employ with every design I create. As a designer, I have personal tastes and interests. I have personal typefaces I prefer uh, over other ones. But a big part of being a good designer is, you know, when you're looking at that, and this is kind of a side note, but when you're looking at that person's portfolio or when you see a, per, you know, a work that that person created in the wild, you should not be able to say, I know who created that. And the reason is because a good designer never creates a, you know, never follows a trend of, you know, f- using the same typefaces or using the same color palette because each different project is unique and has a different approach to it. So that's one of the ways that you can kind of tell. But all that to say is that personal tastes and personal likes, even as a designer, need to be tossed out the window to do what fits that specific project best. Okay, so how does this apply if you're going to be doing fast food design? You can just take all of these five points, jot them out, consider them carefully, and let them guide you with whatever design process you decide to take. Again, if it's going to be one of the quicker design processes, this can significantly help you steer that project in the right direction. Or better yet, if you're going to actually you know, go with a designer, again, this can help you work with that designer, help roadmap that out so that you can ensure that everything stays on track and that final product fits the brand that you are trying to create. So hopefully you found that useful. Hopefully that gives you a better idea of what, you know, some things to watch out for for fast food design. So, you know, if at all possible, you can avoid them. Or even if you have to go with a a faster method for getting your designs created or building your brand, you still can have a strategic approach to doing so. So one of the things I just want to mention here at the end, just to wrap up the show, is that if you're finding Rightly Designed useful, I'd really, or the Rightly Designed show useful, I'd really appreciate it if you take a quick moment to hop on over to iTunes or to, you know, whichever uh, medium that you're using and just leave us a quick review that really helps to help get the Rightly Designed show out there so we have, you know, more people who can, you know, join in and learn a lot more about building an effective brand that will last. So I would like to just take a quick moment to thank you for listening to the Rightly Design Show, and we'll see you next week. Enjoying the Rightly Design Show? Please consider taking a quick moment to leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or the channel of your choice. Visit rightlydesign.com show for links to these channels and more.